0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Double, double in a sea of trouble. Oil on the minds
2: of lawmakers has them reaching for the bard. I think we've changed the... The topic in Washington from whether it's sort of uh, Shakespearean to drill or not to drill. That's no longer the question. What we have done is we have moved beyond that discussion to where we recognize that you have to do it all. Perchance, even to drill in the
1: undiscovered country. Also, the grand green design for the
3: Beijing Olympics. It's really trying to understand. What the essence of the place is about, because we wanted the Olympic Green to be all about China, not an importation of a Western idea.
1: And China lets a thousand green technologies bloom. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Energy issues are powering the political debate, both in Washington and on the campaign trail this summer. Republicans, including John McCain, are demanding an end to the offshore drilling moratorium, while some Democrats, including Barack Obama, say, well, maybe. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent, Jeff Young, digs into the shifting sands of the drilling debate.
5: As recently as June, Barack Obama pledged to defend the moratoria that have kept oil rigs off most U.S. shorelines for nearly 30 years. But with public opinion shifting in response to high gas prices, Obama hinted to a Florida newspaper that he would support an energy compromise that expands offshore drilling. He later explained himself in this speech on energy in Lansing, Michigan.
1: And while I still don't believe that's a particularly meaningful short-term or long-term solution... What I've said is I'm willing to consider it if it's necessary to actually pass a comprehensive plan. I'm not interested
6: in making the perfect the enemy of the good.
5: Obama's speech reaffirmed his commitment to clean energy alternatives. He'd invest $150 billion over a decade in wind, solar, and geothermal power and make those sources supply at least 10% of the nation's electricity. He'd push for more plug-in electric hybrid cars and put a cap on carbon emissions. But it was the mention of offshore drilling that got the attention. One environmental group that has endorsed Obama, Friends of the Earth Action, expressed disappointment. But Obama campaign energy advisor L.G. Holstein insists this is not a major change in Obama's position.
6: Well, it's certainly not a flip-flop because he has supported offshore drilling all along. It's just in these in these particular states where it has been prohibited by federal law, there he's open-minded about any kind of arrangement, provided it protects our coastlines, uh, provided the states agree, and provided that it's part of a bigger package in which we can start moving our economy toward a more sustainable energy future that isn't so reliant upon the imported oil from the Middle East.
5: But uh, aren't, aren't these sort of admissions that his more conservation-oriented agenda is not really connecting with the public and he needs to try something else here?
6: Uh, I don't think so. I think what it is is a confirmation of what he has been saying since the beginning of this campaign, which is he has run as a different kind of candidate, one who is willing to, as he says, reach across the aisle and work with both Democrats and Republicans so we can break the gridlock that has paralyzed Washington.
5: The compromise Obama supports came just as Congress left for its August recess after weeks of bitter deadlock. Five Republicans and five Democrats announced the plan to allow drilling off the coasts of five states, a win for Republicans. It would also strip from oil companies a multi-billion-dollar tax loophole, a win for Democrats. Tax breaks would instead go to help auto companies make and consumers buy more efficient and more alternative fuel vehicles. Nebraska Democrat Ben Nelson thinks the Gang of Ten, as the senators are called, could end the energy gridlock. I think we've changed
2: the the topic in Washington, from whether it's sort of uh, Shakespearean, to drill or not to drill. That's no longer the question. What we have done is we have moved beyond that discussion to where we recognize that you have to do it
5: all. The compromise plan would give Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia the option to allow offshore drilling. And it would bring oil exploration as close as 50 miles to Florida's Gulf Coast. Obama may be warm to the compromise, but some of his environmental supporters are not. The League of Conservation Voters endorsed Obama, but league leader Gene Karpinski says the centrist plan is a bad deal because it only asks for voluntary steps toward more fuel-efficient vehicles. The kinds of potential
2: positive steps from that compromise aren't required as far as we've seen in the proposal so far. So if we're going to be serious about increasing fuel economy... We need mandatory standards to make sure the car companies do their job.
5: The details of that compromise will have to wait until Congress returns from its recess. And a group of pro-drilling Republicans is trying to bring them back early. They're taking to the darkened floor of the House chamber each day in a protest demanding a drilling vote. They even brought former House Speaker Newt Gingrich back to the Capitol to say he thinks Republicans are winning on the issue.
2: And my hunch is that back home right now, there are a lot of Democrats who are tap dancing and saying, oh, gosh, well, I'm really kind of for more energy. I'm really kind of for drilling. Gingrich has confidence
5: that offshore drilling would quickly bring down gas prices. Most economic forecasts do not. The American Petroleum Institute, the oil industry's trade group, says it would likely take seven or more years to get more oil from the coasts. And the government's Energy Information Agency says opening all the coastline to drilling would not significantly affect prices before the year 2030. But Gingrich is not deterred.
2: They're just wrong. The economists believe the minute you agree to start supply drilling,
7: you're
5: going to have a decline in price that minute. More than a million people signed Gingrich's online petition called Drill Here, Drill Now. And that slogan has become part of the stump speech for Republican presidential candidate John McCain, who clearly thinks he's tapped into a winning issue. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Say, Jeff,
1: stay with us for just a minute. Uh huh. How do you see this drilling debate playing out on Capitol Hill?
5: Well, you you know, this is a serious challenge to Democrats. They're getting hammered over gas prices, and Republicans look like they're blocking alternative energy. So come September, I think that compromise proposal in the Senate is going to be getting a lot of attention. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid told me he thinks it's a plan he can work with.
1: Hmm. And so what happens to the moratorium on offshore drilling?
5: Well, so far, Democrats have avoided a vote on it, but they've got to vote sometime before the election because that moratorium only exists year to year and it expires at the end of September. It's not clear that Democrats have the votes to keep it intact. So I think that, again, points to a a compromise as a way for them to both sort of back down from this standoff.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. You're welcome. You can hear all of Jeff Young's interview with Senator Obama's energy advisor and check out our campaign coverage Online at LOE.org. In one hour, enough sunlight falls on the Earth to power the world for a year. There are just two problems with solar energy. It's still expensive and night. But now researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have figured out a way to store solar energy when the sun don't shine. To accomplish the technological trick, the scientists sort of turned over a new leaf. Their innovative process imitates what nature does, photosynthesis. The breakthrough appears in the latest edition of Science. MIT's Dan Nasera is lead author, and Professor Nassera, welcome to Living on Earth.
2: Thanks. That's great to be here.
1: So tell me about your discovery. This is exciting stuff.
2: Yeah, it is exciting. The neat thing about this discovery is we do sort of what nature does. We store sunlight in chemical bonds of hydrogen and oxygen so we can split water to hydrogen and oxygen, and we do it with a catalyst. That's really cheap, and we do it under conditions that are really cheap. So that's what makes this discovery at least interesting and important. So how do you do artificial photosynthesis? In place of the leaf, we put a photovoltaic. So the photovoltaic catches the light, and it makes a wireless current. And then it can feed that current to our compound. Our compound takes water to oxygen. The main part is splitting that water, and that's what we can do now, and we can do it in a glass of water.
1: You know, you got me searching uh, back in memory uh, for my high
2: school chemistry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Go ahead, tell me about it. <laughs> you remembered seeing a teacher probably use... And electrodes and put them in water and make hydrogen and oxygen using electricity from the wall. Exactly. They were using the platinum to make hydrogen. That was the thing that was dipping in the water. And on one side, you saw the hydrogen bubbles coming out. But the thing they didn't tell you is on the other side, where you were making the oxygen at another platinum electrode, that doesn't work so well. So, what the teacher was doing is she or he was goosing the cell and they were just turning the electricity up. And that's how they got the O2. That's called overpotential. They had to use a, a lot of extra energy to get the O2 out. And that's what you don't want to do if you're building an energy economy. You don't want to waste any of that energy. And this new catalyst doesn't waste that much energy. Well, you still got to put energy into the system. Sure do. Nothing comes for free. And so what we're really doing is if we're getting that hydrogen and oxygen, where's the current coming from? Well, in this paper we just published, we did it out of the wall And remember, the electricity from a wall comes from a coal-fired power plant. But we were doing that just because we're scientists and we were working on the catalyst. What you want to do is get rid of the wall current. The catalyst doesn't care where the current comes from. So the next thing is put the photovoltaic there. And that photovoltaic is getting powered by the sun.
1: So what you've come up with
2: really is the catalyst. That's the key here. That's right. It's just the catalyst. And the, the neat thing about this catalyst, it's a glass of water. It's a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal in that it's cheap. We still have a way to go for technology, but I'm kind of hopeful. You know there's a lot of companies who have contacted me, big ones who say, "Look, we know how to deal with hydrogen and oxygen, and we know how to do small power systems, but the way we make our hydrogen is we do what's called reforming. They have big plants and they get their hydrogen from fossil fuels and make CO2, and then they get their oxygen by cryogenically freezing it by, by making the air cold and taking it out. That's really expensive, and you need big plants. So that little village hut in India, you can't set up those plants. But now if you can make hydrogen and oxygen out of a glass of water, makes you can start to envision a widely distributed energy system. And for me, I want to start in the third world. That's where I'm most interested in. And then we can start moving it to other places.
1: What do they say about imitation? It's the sincerest form of flattery? Um, Sure
2: is. Well, here you are imitating nature. And I love nature. At the end, plants are super efficient at using and converting energy. But guess what they don't do? Uh, Store it. And you know that. Did you ever see a fat tree? (laughs) I haven't. And so they're using most of that energy to live, and it only stores a little bit of energy. This thing, I can take all that energy and use it for storage. So I really you know, I couldn't be more happy than imitating nature because she's my hero.
1: Professor Nasera, I heard that you are a big uh, deadhead. I am.
2: Grateful dead fan, huh? Yep, since I was a little kid, 14 years old.
1: Well, is there a song that comes out of their catalog that uh, might suit uh, our topic here?
2: You know, I, there's a lot of them, but I think about Touch of Grey, and it was Jerry Garcia, and he was basically saying... It's gonna be okay as I get older. And that's what I'm hoping It's gonna be okay as I have more touches of gray in my hair too. And I hope I, I wish Jerry were here. I know you'd be happy.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Professor Nasera. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Thanks so much too. We're gonna to keep working hard for you guys.
1: Dan Nassara is the Henry Dreyfus Professor of Energy and Professor of Chemistry at MIT. His co-author is Matt Kanan. Their article is published in the Journal Science.
4: Every got a touch of the rain.
1: Coming up, going for the green as well as the gold, the Beijing Olympics, just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's an architect's dream. You're given a huge parcel of city space and told to lay the groundwork for a world-class event Well, for Dennis Pipers, it was a dream come true. Pipers is president of the architectural firm Sasaki Associates, and he remembers the day well. It was six years ago, mid-July, a Sunday. Pipers was in his office catching up on some work when one of his employees, who was reading a Chinese newspaper online, got excited.
3: And he suddenly jumped up and said, we won, we won. And I wasn't expecting to hear any news, so I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, we won the Beijing Olympics competition.
1: Sasaki Associates came up with the winning design for the 29th Olympiad, beating out 92 competitors around the world. China challenged all comers to create a master plan for the Beijing Games, using a 2,500-acre plot of land, incorporating a forest park, little-used agricultural fields, and some buildings left over from the 1990 Asian Games. Just as the Chinese proverb says a journey of a 1,000 miles begins with a single step, so too creating a master plan for the Games begins with a design concept, or what Piper's calls the framework for the Olympic Green.
3: It's really trying to understand what the essence of the place is about because we wanted the Olympic green to be all about China, not an importation of a Western idea.
1: Traditional Chinese urban design lays out streets in neat grids and uses gateways to enclose large spaces like Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City, monumental sites built on a north-south axis.
3: Our idea was to develop a concept that would be highly connected and integrated with the existing city, with not only the adjacent neighborhoods and districts, but the real heart of the city. And so we organized our scheme around this great north-south axis.
1: Suzaki designers wanted to retain the traditional ways with a twist. Along the great north-south axis connecting Beijing's historic sites is where Piper's planners decided east would meet west. They placed the new national stadium to the right of the axis and the water sports facilities to the left, creating a gateway effect, eastern essence with a modern western flavor.
3: We decided to put the stadium off the axis, letting the axis run through uh, really for future generations to deal with and felt that people needed to be at the center of the place, not an object or some stadium that may last who knows how long.
1: Piper's goal was to create a site that's sustainable. He's keenly aware that Olympic Games can be a sporting success, but the site can be a failure in the future. It happened after 1976 at the Montreal Olympics and the 2000 Games in Sydney, Australia.
3: The problem in Sydney is that the Olympic site and its Olympic-produced facilities were hardly being used. And they had some of the most incredible public spaces and investment in public space. And here was an area that, uh, for example, the arena only used something like 29 times a year. Uh, The stadium only 10 times a year for rugby.
1: Piper says the way to connect a new urban district with an existing city is to take advantage of population density, designing a site that puts people, not buildings, front and center, providing them with access to public transportation and proximity to facilities they'll need and use. For Beijing, the Sasaki plan calls for 28 million square feet of new buildings, buildings most Olympic viewers will never see.
3: Only a small fragment of the overall plan is actually built. But our plan and the city's goal was to create a new district, a mixed-use district. So coming after the Olympics is a whole array of other uses, like hotels, retail, commercial, all going to uh, much more strongly define the major spaces that uh, have been built for the Olympics. When you
1: watch the Olympic Games, you'll be looking at a site in China designed by a firm founded by a Japanese architect, led by a native-born South African, based in Watertown, Massachusetts, a city located half a dozen miles west of Boston along the Charles River. A dam built more than 200 years ago once powered the series of mill buildings that make up Sasaki's World Headquarters here in Watertown. It's where the sales for the USS Constitution, old Ironsides, were made.
6: You can imagine the most, the most sought-after desk locations are right here along the river, where you can open your window and uh, listen to, the, to the, uh, the sound of the river.
1: Jim McGowan is a spokesman for the architectural company. In keeping with Sazaki's work principles, design globally, act locally, they put into practice what they're preaching for the Olympics, putting people at the center of the project. At Corporate World Headquarters in the renovated mill buildings, the prime locations along the Charles River are public spaces, a library, and cafeteria. And today, sustainability is a priority.
6: And, you know, back, back then, uh, the environment was not, was not a priority. And so, obviously, there was a lot of pollution that took place. Uh, so now, in some ways, we're making up for it. And
1: how. Suzaki updated and refurbished the old factory using green design concepts and materials. Meredith Elbaum is Director of Sustainable Design at Sasaki.
8: You know what, to
9: tell you the truth, maybe this is inspiration for other people, I think it's just a lot of common sense. I mean, we really haven't done a lot of radical things. They
1: use recycled materials when possible, environmentally sound cleaners, carpets, and paints. Workers get free public transit passes. Hybrid drivers get choice parking spaces. And once a year, employees go dumpster diving to see how much more they can recycle. Meredith Elbin says they also studied using the old waterfall to generate electricity, but it was too expensive. One thing that did pay off, Suzaki installed automatic light dimmers. Workers don't notice the change, but the electric company sure did.
9: Got to a point um, that the utility actually came by because they thought our meters were broken, because we had reduced our electricity so much um, by 34 um, percent in two years that they thought our meters were broken. Victory again
1: for Sasaki Associates, the company that won the international design competition for the Olympic Green, recently received the U.S. Green Building Council's gold LEED certification, making the firm's headquarters the oldest building in the nation to win the coveted title. Despite the pomp, a cloud still hangs over the Beijing Olympics, or as some have dubbed it, "graying." Pollution persists in the capital, resisting China's efforts to clean the air. But there may be clearer skies on the horizon. A new report says China is in the process of cleaning up not just its act, but other countries as well. The report, China's Clean Revolution, was written by the independent organization The Climate Group. Chang Wu, co-author of the study, says China is working on many different green technologies.
10: The list is pretty long. And if you look at the renewables, wind definitely is getting stronger and has been developing very, very fast. Definitely China has been producing, manufacturing a lot of solar PV, mostly exporting uh, to the developer world at this moment. Look at the other applications like solar water heaters. China definitely is among the largest one in the world. And then uh, down the list, uh, there is uh, like biofuels, uh, which is still controversial uh, internationally, but somehow China is uh, also developing fast. Uh, Hydro is definitely on the list. China has been leading uh, the technology in hydroelectricity and not only the large hydro, but also small and medium-sized hydro technology as well. Uh, Unfortunately, China has to rely on coal mostly for its power, but what's encouraging for us to see is that the government and also the companies in China are investing heavily in clean coal technology. So if you look at the clean coal technology that has been used worldwide, China pretty much leading already.
1: I understand that in 2007, China invested, what, $12 billion in renewable energy technologies, and, and that's second only to Germany. Why are renewables getting so much attention in China right now,
10: then? The fact is that China today uh, has to continue to rely on coal. But in the meantime, we all know uh, the coal factor, not only you know the major source of greenhouse gases, but also uh, domestic pollution. And so the, for the government, basically, it's very, very crucial to look for alternatives. So investing heavily in renewable energy sector is part of the national strategy to shift uh, the country's reliance on coal to other cleaner uh, options.
1: Because according to the World Bank, as you well know, 20 of the 30 most polluted cities in the world are located in China.
10: Unfortunately, it is uh, at this right moment. That's also part of the challenge the top leadership has been trying to grapple with.
1: Your economy is accelerating so fast. I was reading the other day that by, what, 2020, they hope to quadruple the per capita income.
10: Well, this is mainly because of where the country stands today, if you look at the economic development. And China is a developing country and has to continue to grow, even though China kind of has created an economic miracle in the last three decades also by lifting millions, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But in reality, we still have a lot of people and uh, living in poverty. And uh, so China is still at this kind of early stage. Uh, of industrialization. The U.S. and uh, European countries have done your part, and now it's China. And at this moment, we're hoping that China will not really totally repeat the pathways uh, North America and uh, European countries have, have taken in the industrialization process, and uh, hopefully we'll find a kind of cleaner, uh, more efficient, low-carbon option.
1: Well, right now, for the Olympics, they're cutting back on the number of cars that are entering the city of Beijing. Uh, What what is China doing in terms of fuel-efficient cars and alternative fuels?
10: There are two things that the Chinese government has done. Uh, one is dramatically improve the fuel uh, efficiency standard, and we all know actually the current standard in China is much higher than the United States and uh, still a little bit lower and than that in Europe and in Japan. The second thing actually uh, is that we started to see like more investment coming into more energy efficient compact cars instead of really like SUV stuff like that. And uh, hopefully uh, more and more people will start to buy more, you know, energy efficient cars rather than we call like a, you know, gasoline, gasoline SUV.
1: Well, let me ask you to look out 20, 30 years from now in terms of the conditions in in China relative to clean technologies and um, renewables. Is China going to be significantly cleaner, do you think?
10: I can bet on that, and I'm pretty sure down the road in 20 to 30 years, China will become a world leader yeah, around the clean technology. Not only really a user of clean technology, but also producer and uh, supply uh, for the rest of the world, the clean technology as well.
1: I think if Chairman Mao was around today, he might say something like, let a, a thousand clean technologies bloom. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, Ms. Wu, I want to thank you very much.
10: Uh, thank you.
1: Cheng Wa Wu is China director of the non-profit organization, The Climate Group. On the campus of St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, Louise Gava is known as the Eco Lady. Officially, she's coordinator of sustainability projects. St. Lawrence is one of over 500 colleges and universities in the nation that have signed on to the president's climate change commitment, promising that their campuses will go carbon neutral. As students head back to school, we turn to Ms. Gava for a quick lesson in Sustainability 101. Ms. Gava, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Now, I understand that uh, St. Lawrence has come up with something called a sustainability shopping list for incoming students, right? We have. So what's on the list?
0: Well, I think the first thing to note is we want that list to be as short as possible. In other words, uh, I tell people don't buy stuff.
1: Yeah, I I guess you're going to have a lot of parents who are cheering you on.
0: (laughs) I'm everybody's best friend and worst enemy at the same time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what is on the the buying list?
0: Well, quite a lot of things, and they're really easy to procure. One thing would be a power strip, and it needs to have an on-off switch, uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs, a bike. Um, Reusable mug for hot beverages, and often, you know, students like to carry those refillable water bottles as well. Reusable bags for going to the bookstore or down to the grocery store. And, um, you know, then when you're buying things like your refrigerators, make sure they're Energy Star.
1: I know on your website you have something called the Dollar Bill Test.
0: Yes. And that's something that I have yet to find a mini fridge that passes. And what I do is I go into students' rooms and I do an energy audit of their rooms. And one of the things we do is we take their refrigerator and we stick a dollar bill in and, you know, we close the door and they always fall down to the bottom, which means that seal around the refrigerator is not very tight, which means, you know, one, you, it probably has to work a lot harder to keep things cold. So you might have to turn it up more, or just, you know, end up with soggy, I don't know, grapes or, you know, really warm soda. Um, I, I won't say what else students like to put in their refrigerators. And and, and so the, the dollar bill test generally has failed every time that I've been in a college dorm.
1: Here, you're testing your students even before they get to class.
0: I am. I am. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I grade them as well. When I do this audit, we have, you know, there's a grading system and what students in theory are shooting for is not a 4.0, but it's to be a, a sustainability superstar. And what that means is they get a green star slapped on their door and it says, you know, sustainability superstar, ask me how I how you can green your room. So, in other words, those students then become peer educators. You have passed, I have come in, and I have questioned you, I have looked at what is in your room. I have asked you questions about do you know um, you know where Saint, where you can find all the information on St. Lawrence's website about sustainability. Um, then I ask you things like, what are your behaviors? You know, do you go into the the bathroom and run that water? for you know the two minutes in theory or happy birthday or whatever long that you're brushing your teeth right so we talk about all those things we add up their points uh, you know beyond things like what's in your room are you using your power strip let me see the energy settings on your um, computer
1: well louise let's put these questions to one of your new incoming students all right willie mook is joining us from augusta maine and welcome to living on earth uh, willie Uh, thank you This is going to be your first year then, right? Yes. Well, have you looked at the website where there's the sustainability
11: list? I have. And what do you think? I think it's definitely something I'm going to look into as I'm looking into purchasing things from my dorm room um, and just how I'm going to live my life at St. Lawrence.
1: Louise mentioned uh, saving water. Yes. I noticed that the list suggests something called a Navy shower. (laughs)
0: <laughs> hmm. Yes,
11: <laughs> I noticed that too. Actually, yeah. Well, uh, you know what it is. Yeah, I guess you soap up with uh, with no water running, and then you just use the water to rinse off quickly.
1: Uh-huh. Louise, you know, when I was going to school, my generation, we we had a, a motto: save save water, shower mm-hmm. with a friend. <laughs> oh,
0: I'm not sure that uh, all the university would advocate for that, but maybe
1: uh-huh. times have changed. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, what do you
11: think, there, Willie? Uh, Navy shower for you? Ooh, maybe not every day, but I maybe uh, once in a while, you never know.
0: <laughs> well, and I would note, Willie, you got one thing wrong: you do you do got to turn on that water first.
11: right. These are the basics there, Willie. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Now I also noticed that they suggest bringing your own forks and spoons. What's that about, Louise?
0: Well, we have two main dining facilities on campus, and only one of our dining facilities has utensils that are washed. So if you are going to what we call the pub, uh, you will be using, and you don't don't bring your own utensils, you will be using plastic, fork spoon knife so it it is preferred and we would love to see students take the initiative to stick a a fork and a spoon or a knife or whatever in their bag and when they go to grab lunch they they don't need to take one of those plastic utensils and they can actually just pull their utensil right out of their bag
11: what do you think that Willie? yeah i think that's a great idea i think we should all cut back on our plastic consumption that isn't reused
0: Now, what about a
11: bike, Willie? You got a bike? Yes, I've got uh, two bikes. (laughs) Oh, are you going to bring them both to school? Uh, I'm planning on bringing at least one of them, yeah.
1: Because I understand, Louisa, you've got a bike rental system there on campus.
0: We do have a bike rental system. It's called the Green Bikes Program. And just like you can go to the library and check out a book, you can go to the library and check out a bike.
11: What's going to be your major there, Willie? Um, Probably environmental science.
1: Well, Willie, good luck. Well, thank you very much. And Louise, thanks very much for your time.
0: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Louise Gava is sometimes known as the Eco Lady. She's the coordinator for sustainability projects at St. Lawrence University in upstate New York. And Willie Mook is an incoming freshman from Newcastle, Maine. Coming up, the world made muddlicious. Get down and dirty and stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Digging in the dirt can be great summertime fun, but for commentator Bethany Erickson, her brother went too far.
8: Last summer, my brother had a thing for mud. What's unusual about this is that my brother is a 41-year-old academic. One minute, he was reading random articles online, and the next, he was transfixed with the dirt in his yard. He'd read that Japanese schoolchildren were going through a craze of making perfect mud balls in playgrounds. These mud balls, called hikaru Dorodongo aren't just balls of wet soil. They're perfectly smooth, dry balls encased in a glossy shell. Supposedly, patiently layering mud, then burnishing it with fine dirt can achieve this, and my brother was determined to find out. Neither of us had ever made a ball of dirt look like a polished marble when we were kids, nor had anyone we knew heard of a Dorodongo. My brother lives in a tiny forested town with dial-up internet service, but he was intrigued enough to sit for ten minutes stabbing at pop-up ads just to carefully watch a video of someone stroking a handful of mud. The obsession took hold. He no longer talked about the books he had just read or even the other art he'd created. Instead, he'd enlighten us about the best patches of dirt in a two-mile radius. The old plastic post office mail bin in his living room that had once held poetry manuscripts was now full of what he called the good dirt. His worn, tan Carharts took on a gray tinge, and his hands mechanically formed everything he picked up into a sphere. My brother refused to be outballed by Japanese toddlers. Each stage of his day became carefully metered out into minutes of layering, the half-hour of moisture-controlled curing in the fridge, the hour of dusting with fine clay. He stayed up late, patting and rounding. The more involved he got, the more he failed. He invited everyone to join him. We all made excuses. We found ways to bring up people we knew who were obsessive-compulsive, and then we'd stare at him pointedly as he cradled a mug of coffee in one dirt-lined hand and a mud ball in the other. Each of his days ended with a glimpse of pride and hope. Several shiny Dorodongo nestled together on a frisbee. Every morning, they were shattered. Finally in the fall, my brother literally washed his hands of the whole affair. Perhaps his lesson was in resolve, or perhaps just rumination, Maybe he could have opened up a meditation retreat where people would pay to walk around slowly all day massaging a mud orb. But instead, he got emotionally involved. And in the end, the mud balls were good for one thing, throwing. Anyway, my brother is moving forward. Now he's into rocks.
1: Bethany Erickson is a writer and artist from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just ahead, one doctor's prescription to save the planet from nuclear disaster. But first, this note on emerging science from Jessica Elise Smith.
9: Offshore wind energy projects have created a gale of controversy in the United States. Opponents scream, not in my backyard, to the thought of blocked ocean views. But what if wind turbines were placed beyond the point of visibility, well past any of our backyards? Research is now underway to create floating wind turbines. They'll sit on buoy-like platforms, which are anchored to the sea floor and stabilized with taut chains, a technology loosely based on offshore oil rigs. The turbines will ferry electricity to shore through cables designed for undersea use. These structures are called floaters, and they must withstand the nastiest weather, from nor'easters to hurricanes to massive waves. Blue Age Technologies from the Netherlands recently put a scaled version of a floating turbine in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Norwegian oil and gas giant, Statoil Hydro, will drop a model off the coast of Norway. These tests will determine if floating wind turbines can compete in the renewable energy market. Floaters have advantages over fixed-bottom turbines. A major benefit is the greater flexibility in their location. This is important since the wind is stronger and more consistent farther out at sea floaters are manufactured on land and towed out to the ocean with fewer environmental impacts associated with construction. Alternative energy experts say the research is promising and could prove to be the current of the future. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jessica Elise Smith.
1: Dr. Bernard Lowne's home in Newton, Massachusetts, is filled with memories. He keeps many of them in 85 large scrapbooks.
7: Look, Allen Ginsberg was my patient. Look, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Poets,
1: politicians, painters, and celebrities, over the span of his career as a world-renowned cardiologist, 87-year-old Dr. Lowne has treated them all. Among the 5,000 books in his home is Dr. Lowndes' first, The Lost Art of Healing, Practicing Compassion in Medicine. He's professor emeritus at the Harvard School of Public
7: Health and the inventor of the heart-starting defibrillator. I was very successful medically. I developed a host of instruments. I revolutionized part of cardiology, and I was riding high, and I was concerned with the issue of sudden death. For people and the planet. In
1: 1985, Dr. Laund won the Nobel Prize, not for medicine, but for peace, sharing the honor with Soviet cardiologist Yevgeny Chasov. Together, they founded International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Dr. Laund chronicles the history of the organization in his new book, Prescription for Survival, A Doctor's Journey to End Nuclear Madness. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the Cold War drama played out on a world stage with a who's who's list of characters.
7: Their photos featured in the foyer of Dr. Laun's home. This is my first meeting with Gorbachev. That's Cardinal Medeiros. That is the great scientist, Victor Weisskopf, and, and this is Cousin who takes Chaz's place. And this is Fidel so Castro beautiful. with Dr. Laun, the King of Jordan,
1: Leonid Brezhnev, and in the place of honor, an original photograph of Albert
7: Einstein. Life is full of contradictions. The good frequently do bad, and the bad sometimes do good. It was Albert
1: Einstein on August 2, 1939, who sent a letter to FDR telling the president that uranium could be split to produce a bomb more powerful than anything ever created, and warning that Nazi scientists were working on one. Two years later, a day before Pearl Harbor was attacked, the United States started what would become known as the Manhattan Project. Three years after that, on August 6, 1945, the U.S. dropped an atom bomb on Hiroshima, Japan.
3: Tokyo admits extensive damage caused by the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. New air attacks have been thrown against Japan. Washington and other allied capitals are buzzing with speculation about the new bomb and its possibilities.
1: Three days later, the U.S. dropped another atomic bomb on Nagasaki. The two bombs killed an estimated 200,000 people.
7: The overwhelming majority, civilians. The nuclear weapon is an instrument of genocide. It's not a weapon of war. Whom does it kill? It kills not only people, culture, environment. It destroys everything. Such a weapon is a Hitlerite weapon. And we democratic people with a deep moral sense that we pride ourselves have such weapons stockpiled. When you won the Nobel Prize in yeah. 1985, how many nuclear weapons were there? There were, at the time, about 16,000 megatons, roughly 50,000 nuclear weapons. A megaton is 1 million tons of TNT. Now, 1 million tons of TNT would take a train 400 miles long to transport. We had enough destructive capacity to kill everybody alive 20 times over. Today, 23 years later, after you won the Nobel how much megatonnage is there how many nuclear weapons we have roughly about 15000 we and the russians but it doesn't matter because we have enough to destroy the world what does it matter when you have a capacity to destroy the world twice or five times But my question
1: to you is 23 years after you've won the nobel prize we've got we still have this incredible capacity to commit mass genocide and yes. suicide
7: Have you succeeded or did you fail? Well, both. We succeeded in the fact that instant extinction is not on the agenda. Did we eliminate nuclear weapons? Of course not. Did we teach a lot of people understanding and create a deterrence to their use? Yes, because we gave them an image of what would happen. We gave them an image in terms of fire, destruction, radiation. We have, in essence, gained time for human beings.
1: Tell me about the the co-founder of the International Physicians for the Prevention of
7: Nuclear War, Yevgeny Chasov. Chasov is the ultimate doctor. He wanted to develop cardiology in Russia to the level of what he knew to be in the United States, which he respected enormously. And he was a consummate doctor, And a consummate politician. Among Dr.
1: Chasov's patients were members of the Soviet Politburo. Between them, the two doctors had personal and professional relationships with some of the major players of the Cold War. Within just five years, their organization, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, had grown to 150,000 doctors worldwide. But they had enemies as well. The Wall Street Journal called Dr. Laun a tool of the communists, and said he and Dr. Chasov didn't deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. The day before you're getting the Nobel Prize in Norway, it's December 9th, 1985, right. and some some photojournalist, a cameraman, winds up having a heart attack. You wind
7: up with Chasov saving his life. Look at the serendipity, the coincidence. We are reviled in the press. We're sitting in a press conference. It's filled with journalists red-baiting, attacking as viciously as you can imagine Chasov primarily. In this packed news conference, a Russian journalist is raising his hand, and next I look around, he's on the floor. He's collapsed. Chasov and I were next to him, and I've dealt with sudden death all my life. I recognize that there's a cardiac arrest. It is clear to any doctor, and the place is also full of doctors. So we start pumping on his chest and ventilating him and, and the rescue team is slow coming. They come late and there they roll in the very cardioverter defibrillator I developed. And to me, it, it, I'm living in some other world. This couldn't happen by chance. And they shock him and he doesn't recover and the body is let out. As they roll him out, One of the American doctors says, let's give him another shock." They did, and he came back. And I almost in tears say, look, what you have just seen is what doctoring is all about and what our movement is all about. When somebody is threatened with cardiac arrest, we don't ask who they are, what they do, what their politics are. We try to save a human life, and now we're trying to save the life of this world.
1: Well, we now have this business of nuclear weapons that is a trillion-dollar business that we're still very much in business and still has the potential to
7: destroy the planet and everything on it many, many times over. But the good news is that, that in the Wall Street Journal a year ago, Schultz, Kissinger, Nunn, Perry, and others who were architects essentially of this age, the nuclear age, are having second thoughts. Look, now many conservatives are coming around to believe in global warming, right? All of these could have been foreseen. And I, as a doctor, realize that cure is not the answer. The answer is prevention. And prevention is anticipation, is analysis. You have to know the past. And Orwell makes a marvelous statement. He says... Whoever controls the past controls the future. And whoever controls the present controls the past. Dr. Bernard Lowndes' book, Prescription for Survival, is an attempt to preserve the past.
1: To write it, he tried to get his files from the federal government.
7: Look. And he got them. Look. Sort of. That's page after page after page. Totally blacked out. Nothing there. There's nothing there.
1: The only word on the page is secret, classified by G-3.
7: That's it. Yeah. I just got a report a few months ago from the Freedom of Information from NSA, FBI, CIA, saying we regard it as against national security to divulge to you your file. I mean, here you are, a physician,
1: trying to prevent the use of nuclear weapons. What could they...
7: What, could, what kind of threat could you be?
1: Is it, is I, why it, are is you
7: asking me? Why aren't you asking the CIA that question? I mean, you're asking me? I'm the victim. You know, you're not just a witness to history. You made history. You changed history. Well, I, I didn't view myself other than a doctor who's trying to heal a sick planet.
1: Dr. Bernard Laun, co-founder of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, and author of the new book, Prescription for Survival, A Doctor's Journey to End Nuclear Madness. living on Earth, a rapidly spreading grass from Ethiopia threatens Arizona's iconic cacti.
2: Uh, This grass burns very vigorously with very tall flame, and it's easily able to uh, destroy a house and all the plants, including saguaros around it. An
1: invasive plant puts our national parks at risk. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a bird noted for its beautiful singing, the nightingale. This nightingale song echoes across a deep valley in Dorset, England, and a tawny owl joins in. Richard Margotius made this recording at Funtmail Magna in 1982. It's from the British Trust for Ornithology Nightingale Appeal CD. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Jackson Brader, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Govoni. Our interns are Luke Borders, Kim Gittleson, and Jessica Elise Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
4: Funding for Living on Earth The Skull Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skull.org, And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.